So, um, we're in the Tanya trying to develop some level of connection to our spiritual selves. We've visited the Nefesh Bahamis, which is the the physical, the animalistic, and the materialistic side of our experience of life. And that soul is focused primarily on engaging in survival and and pleasure. It's a very it's a very um, recognizable p- kind of presentation of the human of the human psyche. It's, it's manifest all over the show. You can see its uh, footprints treading over all kinds of uh, media, specifically in the world of advert- advertising. The person most prominently appealed to is the Nefesh Abahamis, whereby the Nefesh Abahamis will be all, all the all the midas that the Nefesh Abahamis has, those those different components of himself. For example, one of them is the, the desire for, for lethargy, uh, the, the pursuit of pleasure for its own sake, and the avoiding rest. If you take those principles of the Nefesh Bahamis and you create a full color picture advert, it would look something like this. A deck chair situated on a beach which has a remote control that can, you don't even have to adjust it yourself. You can just push the button and it gets higher or lower. Next to you stands a waiter taking your orders for the specific requests of the exact type of food you'd like so if you want your toast lightly done and your fried egg um, sunny side up and your orange juice freshly squeezed you'll be able to fulfill all those needs and he'll serve it to you on a silver platter without you having to move an inch so that sounds immensely appealing certainly to me and perhaps even to some other people in the room so that's like that's inviting the Nefesh Bahamis to come and, and, and make himself at home because that level of pursuit of physical pleasure for its own right, and I'm not trying to dismiss that this may be a healthy thing for a person to do in order to uh, regain strength after being exhausted so they can replenish themselves, so they can further continue in, in some kind of mission, but as an end game. Is that where I'm striving to be, which unfortunately can sometimes be our focus, where we focus the, 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 the week is such and the year is such that people's focus can often gravitate towards the holiday period, whereby they see that as the reason why they're working so hard the whole year is because then they can reach this point where they can just be in an idyllic location and have all their needs taken care of and being pampered and in that ironic twist of psyche, it means that I'm focusing most of my energies, intelligence, talents in life to achieve a goal, which is an expose of this part of me, which is perfectly and utterly attuned to materialistic pleasures and nothing more than that. And even though no, people aren't that simplistic, but often it's presented that way. Like, this is a dream holiday. Why is it a dream holiday? It should be a nightmare holiday. 
How is a nefesh is feeling at that point when you sit on that deck chair, gazing out at the sea, sipping your orange juice and nibbling on your fried egg on your lightly done toast? How's a nefesh is feeling at that point in time when you're doing it for its very own reason? He's totally disengaged. And this is where the, the Balatanya speaks about the idea of the clipper. Just like a banana skin or a shell of a walnut encloses and protects you, creates an opaque surrounding around the fruit, which is the essence. And it gives, an, it gives a blocking of access to the experience of the fruit, which is really what this, the, the essence of what the thing is. So to the clipper covers over the experience of life and presents us with something which is the form of the experience of life, but the essence is, is, is out of it. Meaning a person could theoretically have the same experience of the deck chair, but experience it through the eyes of the fruit and not through the eyes of the kippah, if he's able to elevate those pleasures for a high purpose and for a higher need. But the purpose, the, the pleasures for their own right are like a covering over a real experience of life which is transcendent it's deep it's powerful it's moving it's mo- it's, it's coherent it speaks to the essence of the person's self and who is the essence of the person's self that's when the Balatanya introduces us to the godly soul the nefesh it's a part it's a part of God. Now we have to be very careful in describing the part of God this chalik because generally chalik means for example you have a cake I don't mean to awaken your nevish Bahamias on this fine Sunday morning, but just imagine the kind of the kind of delicious moist chocolate cake which has been which has been iced with the most delicious Swiss chocolate craftily melted onto the top of the cake and as you put the cake knife down the center it's got that sense of balance just not too firm but not too soft so the the firmness with the moisture and the icing which is thick. It must be a couple, a couple of good couple of millimeters thick, and as you put it in your mouth, there's a melting of this incredible synergy of the chocolatey, flowery feel of the texture of the cake, which is so phenomenally poised between just enough cocoa with sufficient true sugar to bring out the sweetness. And that sting of the cocoa taste. And as you put that piece in your mouth. So it's not like that kind of piece. It's a different kind of piece completely. Um, the piece of Hashem is a piece that when you take it away, nothing is missing. So it's not a piece that separates from Hashem. And now there's Kiviyochel, less Hashem, because you've got a part of him. But it's a piece, over here, the context of Chelek Kamima means... It represents and shares the same components as. It's, it's, it's associated with. In other words, when you say, when you say, when I look at Shmerel and I look at his father, I say, ah, he's a chip off the old block. Have you heard that expression? That's, that's mm-hmm. a familiar expression. It means that you're a piece of your dad, but it doesn't mean that your dad has now got a missing piece inside of him. It means you are <laughs> the same. You're a chip of the old block. You're the same as Pa. You just, you just, you just got the same. But what does chip of the old block mean? He's the block, and you're a chip of that block. You're a chalik from your tata. But you're not a part of him. It just means that you're the same as him. You with me? So that's a chelik of the kamimal mamash. That's what it means that we have a godly part to ourselves. Now, this is where it becomes a little bit confusing. And this is really what we're all about in this year right now. We're trying to experience it because I'm telling you this and I should be telling this and everyone should be nodding. Like if I say to you, when I, go, when I went into the cake and I went into the moisture and the delicious rich chocolate on the top 
everyone here was connecting. Except Gabe, perhaps. He's got a cocoa allergy. But everyone, everyone, you connect to that. I don't have to explain to you what it feels to put that delicious, moist piece of delicately crafted cake in your mouth and to savor the pleasure on your tongue. No one's saying, I don't know what the experience is like. What are you talking about? What do you mean about that? What's that? I don't know what that is. No one's saying that. Because the access to our material self is here in cash as we're doing it in this world. There's no, there's no need. It's there. It's available. It's accessible. It's default. And then I start speaking to you about this neshama, which is the core, the essence of our beings. And now it's as if almost I'm speaking in the realm of mysticism and philosophy. Because it's not that you say, Why is that about me? <laughs> Maybe he's good enough. I'm, <laughs> I'm like, you know, I'm not the kind of guy. <laughs> which, which, is, which, 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 means that there's, which means that we are a victim of the clipper. It means that the access to that essence, the core of ourselves, is being blocked by something. Now, the notion of being blocked doesn't have to be only understood, and perhaps an access point to what blocked means can be experienced through when we feel emotionally blocked, and then we can maybe extrapolate to what does it mean to feel spiritually blocked. I don't, I don't know if you, if you, if you, for me, I have very conscious experiences of feeling often I have an emotional block. For example, I'm tired, and um, I made a simcha. And I can't experience the simcha that I'm at. At another stage in my life, if I'd feel that the block wasn't there, if I'd feel open, I'd be able to join in and celebrate. But when I'm not in the mood, have any of you said the word, I'm not in the mood? Mm-hmm. If you're not in the mood, that means there's a block stopping your relevant emotions from being expressed at that moment in time. Whether it be in the world of sadness or happiness, sometimes you go to a person who's had a tremendous loss and you just feel numb. You don't feel anything. Sometimes you go to a person that's experiencing incredible joy and you don't feel anything. And sometimes you feel when a person's having a loss, I've been brought to tears by someone else's loss and I've been brought to joy by someone else's simcha. And sometimes, even though the relationship between the person is no different from the time I was brought to tears or brought to laughter, but because I'm not in the mood, boom, I say, oh, that's nice. So there's a block. In other words, there is that emotion inside because I've experienced it before, but there's something wedging its way between me and the experience and saying, no, you're not going to experience that. That's a block. Now, arguably, that's the block that we experience in our spiritual self. And it could be we have to develop a perception of, well, when when do I feel unblocked spiritually in order to get a drop of access? Because I'm not quite sure if we process it consciously as the when are, when are unblocked spiritual times. We, we haven't been grounded in the language of spiritual experience. So it could be that we do have it the whole time, but perhaps we just don't create within us an awareness. Once since I've been occupied, since I've been thinking about the suga, I've, I've really developed a new perception of tefillah, and I've been able to gauge, as my Shemona Estra evolves, different periods of blockage and non-blockage. Sometimes when I feel intimately as if HaKadosh Baruch Hu is, uh, not, not that I know, that I theorize, that I philosophize, but I, but I feel the presence of Hashem in front of me, listening to my every words. And other times I feel that I'm just reciting a script. And I've been able to gauge those and I've been able to question myself as to what kind of thing do I need to do to maintain that proximity, that spiritual openness so that I can feel that this is an ongoing dialogue and not a um, soliloquy. Big word for words I say just about myself. 
You knew that, Jonathan. I know you knew that. Okay, so that's what the Balatanya says. The Chelik the Chelik, the Nef, the Neshama, the other part of our psyche has no interest in stake. There's a part of us that has no interest in stake. He has no interest in pursuing desire. He has no real interest in the notion of putting a roof over our heads or having a car that gets us from point A to point B or making sure that I have clothes which are fashionable and fit well. He's not interested. Because fundamentally, could be he'll use those as tools, but he doesn't have a fundamental interest in them for their own sake. It's such an important distinction to make. It doesn't mean that the Nefesh Elokis doesn't want you to be well-dressed, doesn't want you to have a roof over his head, but he doesn't, he doesn't see a fundamental value. It's not fundamental. It's secondary. It's, it's facilitating. Uh, to, to, to everything the Nefesh Elokis sees, everything in the world of, in the realm of materialism, he sees it as a, as a tool for... Imagine if someone gives you a very specific tool. We went and we celebrated my in-law's 57th wedding anniversary last night. Book him to you. And my mother-in-law, bless her, runs a library. And part of the library, the way they raise funds, is people bring all their stuff they don't want. And then she has what she calls a white elephant sale. And she sells off all the junk and people buy it. You know, it could be two shekels, three shekels, but she's able to get some money for the for the for the library so she decided to take a selection of <laughs> all these things and i give them as presents to her, her grandchildren great-grandchildren which was a fantastic idea but the problem was you had these things in the pile which are completely unidentifiable there was like this mechanism for holding something <laughs> wasn't clear what it held but that's like the nature of my but it was it was definitely a tool for holding or was it to hold a phone, or was it to hold some abstract lamp, or was it just something which is like a specific part of another machine that we just didn't have the rest of the machine? So imagine someone comes up to you and they give you a very specifically designed stainless steel immaculate um, tool, and it's got a um, it's got a, it's got like a series of buttons, and it's got like a, even like an indicator light, and it's got a, a little bit of a, a glass. Um, cylinder at the bottom, and they say, this is yours. Now, very few people would look at the key and say, whoa, thank you, and and then say, hmm, fantastic, and just look at it. The question I'd probably ask you is, what is it for? What am I using this for? They wouldn't say, oh, whoa, this is cool, and just take it home with them. <laughs> just like, hold it. They'll recognize that the tool is a functional thing. It's not a fundamental. There's a difference between a fundamental and a functional. So this is such a crucial distinction to make, specifically in terms of our own identity. Think about myself. Do I look at myself as functional or fundamental? So the trap of self-esteem, as we've discussed multiple times, is that it views person, people as functional. And therefore, your weight and your worth is measured by how well you're doing. It's like a drill. If I have a drill, and I've got a drill, the point of the drill is to drill. Now, if the drill doesn't drill because it doesn't have the power, or it doesn't have the um, percussion setting, which gets through those really hard surfaces, so then I'll say, well, that's a bad drill. That's a bad drill. I don't use that drill anymore. 
Because it's there for a function. If it's not performing in its function, so then it's a bad drill, throw it away. If it's not working at all, you should duck it, tuck it, throw it away. How do you see a human being? Is a human being like a functional thing? And that's the beginning and end of him? If that's true, the minute a human being stops his functionality, let's say, as people get older and they stop being functional, for sure, when people are in a critical condition supported by life machine, life support machines, there is no functionality to their being. They're a drill that's not working. Pull out the plug. Why are you wasting resources? And if we perceive ourselves in that light, so our life will be a constant roller coaster of up and downs because we can't be fully functional in every situation. We are going to be bad at things and even things we're good at, we're going to fail at. And if my worth is based on my functionality because all I am is an output system measured by my function, so then sometimes I'm going to do the job well, sometimes I'm going to do it badly. And if my worth is based on doing it well, I will always be in a up and down seesaw of good, bad, good, bad, good, bad. Worthy, worthless, worthy, worthless, worthy, worthless. And in that point of worth, worthlessness, I will feel depressed and ineffectual and terrible. And when I'm worthy, I'll feel arrogant and above those around me. So that's a terrible, terrible paradigm to be in. But if we suggest that there's actually something meaningful about a person for their own right, and their functionality is not the yardstick of their worth. The functionality is measuring how well they're doing the job they're doing. But that's not a comment on their worth. Their worth is independent. For example, There are many things to just as a, as a, as a, as a not absolutely accurate illustration. There are many things where their functionality and their worth can be discriminated. Take for example a two hundred year old sewing machine. So in terms of functionality, it has a very low level of functionality, but in terms of worth, it's very precious because it's an antique. So there, the worth is separate to the functionality. We could say, this thing is worth. So a, a modern machine, which would do the job a thousand times better, will fetch a fraction of the price because this has a worth which is outside of its role of functionality. Are you getting that? Well, one second. Are you telling me that I'm worse than an old sewing machine? <laughs> but we say that to ourselves the whole time. We say that to ourselves all the time. I have no worth but my presentation of being. And if I can't present well, then I'm worthless. Really? But you carry far more worth than the antiquity of a sewing machine. You have inside of you the precious gift of a neshama, of a chelikel kamimal, of a godliness, of a perspective to be able to be self-reflecting, to become kind to your own detriment, to become powerful to the pain that you may suffer through self-control and discipline. And those things are in you whether you use them or not. And therefore, that's what your worth is dependent on. Your output is, well, can you use it or not? That's something that you have to get proficient at. That's your job that you have to do. But your job that you have to do doesn't take away from your worth. You may be terrible at your job. You're still worth, it's a little bit like a... um, person buys, I think we've used this Marshall before, but I think it's apt to requote it. You buy a Ferrari. You're not really a motor car fundi. 
So you don't realize that this is a sports car. And you don't realize how to change the gears. So there's six gears. And you've only ever learned how to put into first gear. So when you drive the Ferrari, you only ever first gear, you probably get to like 80 kilometers an hour. But you only already drive it in first gear. So now, does that mean that the Ferrari is a bad Ferrari? No, it's a great Ferrari. It's worth millions. You're just not using it. Say this, so you should use it. But the fact that you're not using it doesn't depreciate it. It just means there's so much more to be realized. You'd realize it. But the fact that you're using it badly doesn't comment on the worth. Now, we need to, for emotional equilibrium, base our sense of self, our identity, on the intrinsic part of who we are and not the functional part of who we are. Because the functional part of it isn't a reflection of worth. It's a reflection of effective carrying out of strength, but it doesn't tell me my worth. My worth is independent. Are you getting this thing about worth? This is huge. And when my sense of self is based on the internal greatness of my spiritual being, so then I always feel worthy. And when I make the biggest mess ups, I still feel I'm worthy. And it's crucial because when I make the biggest mess ups and feel worthy, the fact that I still feel worthy gives me the courage to fix up the mistakes I've made. Whereas if my self-worth lies in my actions, so when I mess up, I feel there's nowhere to go and I don't try to fix my mistakes. So this, this rooting ourselves, grounding ourselves in our internal worth spells out a completely different way of life. When we encounter failure, when we encounter rejection, we don't get emotionally knocked to the point of no recovery because we say, okay, well, I did that wrong. How can I fix it? Because I know I'm okay. The thing that I'm okay is unshakable. My okayness. It's more than okayness. My greatness. Because it's not based on what I do. It's based on what I am. And unfortunately, as the secular world moves more towards the utility model of what human beings are, and human beings are measured by production, by income, by facial features, by how ripped their guns really are, and I don't mean to come to exclude a chosh of a six-pack, so I could good. Once you do that, so then you're setting yourselves up for an emotional disaster, because your life is going to be um, tainted with constant anxiety of acceptance, rejection, failure, success. And you're going to have to distract. And you're going to have to smoke, fiddle on your phone, bury yourself deep in entertainment, drink, and become addicted to every other kind of thing that will numb the pain of the brutal knowledge of the fact that you don't feel that you can succeed because you can't succeed on those terms. You can never succeed on those terms. It's a battle that you're destined to lose. So the major wound that modern secularism has inflicted upon us is the paradigm of self-esteem, leaving us prey to a world where we can never fully succeed in. And then taunting us with the people who are paraded as the ultimate carriers of good self-esteem. Because they've succeeded. They've done it. And even they internally will be suffering. Yaakov Riga. In terms of being created with a certain Kli capacity, um, and in relationship to the example you gave earlier, 
are we just saying that maybe at, at mo to fulfill our clean capacity, we can learn how to get up to fifth gear, but we can't necessarily change the vehicle that we are in our identity. You are like Ferrari. Like a Ford to Ferrari. You if are we're a Ford. We just have to know how to use the Ford to its a separate point. You you are a Ferrari. You may or may not learn how to change gears, but you're still a Ferrari. New point, the second point that the Balatanya made was the idea of the different levels of Nishamas. But I'm hammering home this point because even the lowest of the lowest of the lowest of the Nishamas, which are from the toenails of Kal Israel, are the highest of the highest of the highest of things. Okay? Daniel. Um, I hear about like what worth isn't. But I'm not even clear about like what worth should be instead. Okay, so that, that that's all we're trying to do, and all we've been trying to do for the last few weeks is get to a point of a, trying to find a way in to accessing what worth is. And worth is in the Shama. Worth is the fact that I have a Chalikokamima. I've got a priceless component of self that is beyond comprehension, beyond kindness, beyond power, beyond everything. And that's a defining point of who I am. And were I to have some kind of visceral experience of that internal being, there'd be, no, there'd, be no, there'd, be, there'd be nothing else to be said. The notion of self-esteem would be ludicrous. It's like, I, I would feel the Ferrari inside of me. So when I didn't drive that fast, I would just say, okay, so let me think I have to figure out how to change gears. I would feel it. And what the point we're trying to do is, and we may fail at this, but at least give it a bash. We're trying to get a visceral experience of soul. Because with that, we'll become inoculated against the trials and tribulations of emotional ups and downs, apart from the fact that, as we mentioned in another context, it's our only point of access to living a spiritual life. Because only if we develop the internal receptors of the external manifestations of Hashem can we relate it. As we spoke about many times before, that you can't see without eyes and you can't feel without a heart. So how can you see Hashem without a soul? If we define the worth as like having a chilek on time imam, so then what's the worth of a Jew? No, it also has a shama spiritual component. Selim alekim, chaviv adam shenivra b'tzayim. Every human being is created in the image of Hashem, which means they have this capacity. That's still within the what like what the Tanya said. Okay, the, 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 the Tanya, the, there's, a con, there's ambiguity in the Tanya, the way it ends off the third, the second, the first parak, but that's an open mission. The mission says, Chaviv Adam Humanity is beloved because they're creating the image of God. The image of God means that they have a component which is spiritual within them. So the modern society kind of yanked out the notion of the Neshama, and that's the main issue that, in like, self worth and self esteem. So modern society presents humanity as a materialistic being. And, yeah, the, the specific modern society, in other words, previous societies, had a more spiritual bent. But 2021, 70% of American um, young people <coughs> are, um, have no affiliation to any religious organization. Which means, as a whole, the, 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 no, the notion of formal religion is disappearing. At this point, you never know what, what can turn. What is interesting is I read an article about prayer. 
and there was a surge during COVID where 8 million people subscribed to the Anglican Church in England, Anglican Church's online prayer services, <laughs> which I think was double the amount of the previous year. So, so there's something, there is something maybe that, amidst all of this, it's never, it's never black and white. The, the spiritual side of man is always striving. And um, it's hard to read. It's hard to read any any work, any novel, or any even non-fiction work, and not to feel ripples of a deeper, transcendent notion. The world, the world is a is a deep place. It's hard to enjoy, as I was this morning when I was listening to Beethoven's Seventh. It's magnificent. I was, I was almost, I felt a little bit like Ulysses and the Sirens, as the, as the delicate music, music is like pulled me in. Um, yeah. What's the what's the way of uh, switching gears? In other words, how do you in a failure situation, like whatever it is? Right. So, so, so we, we're, we're still on the theoretical plane and you want to make it more practical. Um, we can figure out how to do that. I think there's a lot of practical steps that when you, when you um, let go of your... The, finding identity in your functionality is most commonly referred to as what people, people call that ego. And when you let go of your ego, so then you can discover yourself. The ego is like the clipper. The ego, you know, it's an acronym, Ariel. You know what, what it's an acronym for? Ego? Ego, yeah. No. Edge God out. Yakov. <laughs> can, can one uh, completely eliminate the ego or only minimize it? Good. I, I, I just borrowed the term ego. I don't want you to keep on using it. Um, well, we'll see. We'll see. We've got, we've got a bit of time ahead of us to discover. Thank you, gentlemen.